Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Moral Machine, Algorithms That Give a Window into the Soul, by Graham Tomlin. A few years ago, I was thinking of buying a camera for my wife as a birthday present. I lazily browsed through a couple of websites to check out the options. And something odd started to happen. Somehow, my laptop seemed to think this was a good idea and sprang into action. Whenever I went onto Amazon, eBay or any other website selling stuff, it kept pushing adverts for cameras at me. Canon or Nikon, Point and Shoot or DSLR. How did it know? Could it read my mind? It was the first time I noticed the power of the algorithm. A bit later on, thinking I ought to get up to speed with the religions of social media that I had little clue about, I opened up TikTok started to swipe upwards, apparently that seemed to be the way to do it. This time, I was determined not to like or unlike anything, follow anyone or be followed by anyone. Yet mysteriously, it still worked out what I liked and kept pushing short, addictive videos at me, enticing clips of football, mountains and music, along with other random stuff mixed in. How did it know me so well? Of course, better informed people than me know how all this works. The algorithm figures out which accounts you follow, any comments you've posted, clips you've liked or shared, and in particular, videos you've watched all the way to the end. So if you linger over a video, it knows you like it. If you rush on quickly to the next one, it makes a mental note that you're not so keen. It all feels a little sinister, yet very clever. You often read dark theories of social media and the way it is rewiring our brains. And when you look a little closer, it is as old as the hills. The algorithm simply takes the desires of your heart and amplifies them. So if you like or linger over certain videos expressing a certain particular cultural or political opinion, it will send you more of the same. The result is we get confirmed in our own frameworks, which never get challenged by others. It's part of why we are so polarised as societies these days. When you ask why the other side cannot see the obvious truth that you see, the answer is that they literally don't see it. They don't see it because the algorithm doesn't feed them the same things as it feeds you. Social media like TikTok, Facebook and Twitter or X... Learn to recognise what your heart really desires, not just what you say you do. They notice what you linger over, what catches your fancy and sends you more of the same. They are apparently studiously neutral on moral questions. They seem to have no moral designs on you, to school you or form your soul in particular ways, but are simply a reflection of your own longings. What TikTok, Facebook, Instagram and the others all do is to propel you further in the moral direction in which you are already headed, which for most of us is not a great idea. 
Now, of course, there would be howls of protest if TikTok announced a moral code, that it was about to encourage virtue and discourage vice by deliberately sending us improving videos, material that the mysterious people who run it think is good for us. And that is not because we think virtue is bad and vice is good, but because we can't decide on what virtues we want to encourage or what vices to stamp out. We draw a line at cruelty to children and extreme violence, but not much else. It is also because we hold as sacrosanct the freedom of the adult individual to choose his or her own way in life, as long as they don't hurt anyone else. Such sites are exemplars and vehicles of expressive individualism. Not just in the myriads of people who show off their dance moves, sing their songs or act out half-funny scenes on a golf course, but in that they confirm me in my own wishes. They don't tell me what to want, but they give me more of what I want. As a result, TikTok or Facebook is an alarming mirror into the soul. See what it sends you, and it just may be that it tells you more about yourself than you would like to know. Such sites appear to be morally neutral. They don't seem to aim to educate you or form you in any particular direction, or at least they're not supposed to. But of course, nothing is entirely neutral. Funnily enough, it's not how we bring up children or educate ourselves. When we bring up a child, most of us have some kind of vague or not so vague moral code in mind. We reward kind and helpful behaviour and we punish selfish and mean actions. We don't tend to give more of the same to a child who has eaten the first half of the packet of biscuits or encourage a brother to hit his sister yet again. We have a goal of some form of moral formation in mind. Yet despite our confusion over which virtues to encourage, we need some kind of moral guidance for our wandering and flawed hearts, linked to eyes that are tempted to feast on things that fascinate but are not good for us. Like a glutton who cannot stop eating, even if these sites don't themselves push extreme violence, pornography, aggression, they offer enough of the soft version of these to draw you in. And it's not hard to find sites that will take you deeper into the darkness. And those sites will already know the way you are thinking and desiring and are ready to pull you in deeper into the mire. The problem is not so much with the algorithm, it's with us. Netflix's documentary The Social Dilemma quotes an alarming statistic that fake news spreads six times faster than the truth. The reason is not hard to find. We are fascinated by the sensational and alarming rather than something a little more ordinary, yet which happens to be true. As one person in the documentary put it, the internet has a bias towards false information because false information makes more money. The truth is boring. The moral philosopher Gilbert Mylander wrote... Successful moral education requires a community which does not hesitate to inculcate virtue in the young, which does not settle for the discordant opinions of alternative visions of the good, which worries about what the stories of its poets teach. 
It matters what we feed our souls with. It matters what stories we allow ourselves to be told. The purveyors of social media are not innocent in this, as they do exploit our worst tendencies. But in the end, they simply confirm us in our own moral confusion. Yet it does point up the problem in the liberal ideal of leaving ethical decisions entirely up to the individual, to give entirely free choice without any guidance. Because with our crooked hearts, it will always end up feeding the darker sides of our characters without a corresponding pull in the other direction, something which Christians call divine grace. St. Paul wrote to the small group of Christians in Philippi, surrounded by the highly sexualized and violent culture of the Roman Empire, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'm not saying don't watch TikTok. But here's an idea. Why not try to make it into a morally forming version of what you want to be, not what you are? Exercise a bit of moral direction yourself. If you see a video which you know in your conscience is not good or is spreading lies, swipe it away immediately. If you see something positive, dwell on it. If you approach it in this way, you might just be able to persuade the algorithm to shape you in good ways and not the bad. It could become a means of growing in goodness, but only if you want it to be. From the Barber's Chair, The Friendships That Open Us Up by Adrian Urquides and Neil Presser. Adrian, as life moves on, I began to realise how important my friendships are. Half the people that I grew up with are now married with kids and the other half are still living their life independently. We all have our own paths in life and I believe whichever path you take, those whom you consider friends will support you and your decisions no matter what. As I went through my issues in 2019, I had nothing but support from my family and friends. It wasn't easy for me to be open with my struggles because I felt that everyone would look at me differently. I received nothing but support from everyone then and when I returned to work. They were all there waiting to book their next haircuts with me. From the beginning of my return, I knew then how important my clients were to me. I wasn't just their barber, I was their friend, whom they continued to support even during one of the craziest times in my life. Trying to stay afloat during a global pandemic was not easy. Honestly, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with. I knew I had to be as strong as I could be so I could help my loved ones stay positive and their heads held high. During these times, I worked as much as possible. At every appointment with a client, they showed support and always checked in with how I was. I used all these opportunities to help myself by speaking what was on my mind. Sometimes they would even open up to me and share what was going on in their lives, positive and negative. These times were much needed therapy sessions at every appointment. 
being vulnerable helped me so much. And it also helped my friends share what was on their minds. They opened up to me. Growing up, we were taught never to show any fear or emotion. I grew up in a rough area where if you showed weakness, you could be the next target to get bullied. I didn't realise until about four years ago how that way of living was wrong. That way of living haunted me for years. Going back to my childhood, there was an incident that shaped my teens and early adulthood. I was touched inappropriately by a member of my family and thankfully someone came home so it didn't go further than it did. I never spoke about this incident because I didn't realise the severity of the situation as a young boy and how it would affect me in my later life. You would never think a family member would do anything to harm you in any way. Even as an adult, I never said anything because I did not want to get judged or have people put a label on me that wasn't true. When I finally felt right to open up about this incident, it was with people who shared the same struggles. They understood and never once judged me. These were people who i just met, but I felt like I'd known them for years. I opened up to them more than I had opened up to my childhood friends and family. This is where I discovered the meaning of friendship. I was never judged and looked at differently. I was the same person to them and I was accepted no matter what. What a great feeling. I began to hold my friendships close as I had the confidence to share so much with everyone One of the first clients whom I felt comfortable with opening up with was my friend Neil. I remember going over to cut Neil's and his son's hair and I was always left feeling purified. I can honestly say that Neil is one of a kind and I'm so lucky to have him by my side. Neil has seen me at my lowest and never once has he ever judged me. He and his family have shown nothing but support and just truly care for our friendship. This is where I discovered the meaning of friendship. To me, the meaning of friendship is endless love, no matter what the person or persons are going through. You never judge, but try to point your friend or loved one in the right direction. Always support and be there when you can. You can take for granted those friendships and lose sight that they are the ones that would be there with a simple phone call or text. Today I cherish all my friendships and I'm there for those who were there for me when I was at my lowest. I will do anything in my power because I know my friends and family would do the same for me. Neil. 30 years ago, there were a little over 600 websites. Two years after the World Wide Web debuted on the global stage, today there are a little over 2 billion websites. Yet with all of our connectivity, loneliness is endemic. The social isolation that ensued during COVID-19 only exacerbated what was latent in our body politic. Yet whether we are pre, peri or post-COVID, the level and depth of loneliness is staggering. While many people have social media accounts and the ubiquity of smart devices keep us all connected 24-7, One's number of likes and friends and followers belie what is experienced in silence. We live and move and have our being 
in lonesome existence. We seek to be known and loved, but our career pursuits and dreams of having families leave us feeling alone. For eight years, I served an affluent congregation in one of America's most affluent zip codes. Business acumen, political gravitas, excellence in duty and elegance in programme execution were the values and expectations of the community and congregational context. It was a wonderful ministry where I learned much and where I had to engage my gifts and skills in deeper ways. God opened up spaces for me to minister within, love and be loved by people who are successful in their industry. When that ministry concluded, two separate congregants asked to meet me for a meal. Each of them shared that they appreciated my season of partial ministry and they hoped that we would continue staying in touch, perhaps become close friends. They realised that they had spent decades forging business relationships, raising a family for one of them, navigating a divorce of a second failed marriage and having careers. Now in their mid to late fifties, they looked around and saw the absence of relationships of any meaningful depth. Sure, there were the business lunches, dinners with friends and cocktails with other couples. But in their midlife, they sought authentic friendships. They desired someone or a few who could understand them, who desired to understand them, to love them. And to love them not for a quid pro quo, but just to love them for who they are. They said that they experienced a semblance of that in my eight-year ministry with the congregation. What was I to do with their request? I'd already left the employment of the church by then. They and I had to part ways as I was no longer their pastor. If anything, we were friends and we would remain so, but I couldn't commit to the level of depth that they desired. I told each of them gently and pastorally, that two decades ago, when I was newly married and starting my pastoral vocation, I intentionally forged a wide network of friendships, not just for my work, but for emotional and spiritual support. But among this network, there was that small few whom I could count on one hand, who are the A-team of friendships. Those friendships were cultivated over many years, a couple of them over two decades, as we have been intentional about being in each other's lives. We would stay in touch and we would find opportunities to see each other, carving out precious times wherever we were in the world and whatever demands were on our plate. That intentional commitment meant being willing to be vulnerable. It meant taking the risk early on to open up my heart with guys I deeply trusted and who entrusted their hearts to me. The message version of the Old Testament wisdom sayings of Proverbs says, Friends come and go, but a true friend sticks by you like family. I didn't want to deflate the spirits of my two former congregants, but neither did I want to overpromise to commit myself to investing the time and energy in cultivating the depth of friendship that they sought. I told them let's stay in touch and we left it at that. It's been over a year since those sacred conversations and there's radio silence. 
In reflecting upon those conversations, and in similar conversations with many pastor colleagues and fellow dads who are not pastors, loneliness is indeed endemic. It's tragic and it's sad. As we can't be deep friends with everyone, there is a yearning and longing for the depth of friendships that my former congregants sought. People seek that authentic depth of desiring to be known, of being listened to, of being received and welcomed into one's heart without having to prove anything. As Jesus was nearing the end of his time with his friends, his disciples, he emphasised how important it is to love one another. He even washes their feet to demonstrate that even the Son of God will humble himself because he loves his friends. He teaches them what he means when he calls them friends, when he regards us as his friends and not as servants. This is what Jesus, our friend, said. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. The late Earl Palmer, an American Presbyterian pastor, talked from this passage. Palmer observed that Jesus regards us as his friend by virtue of the fact that Jesus allows us to be in the company of him and the Heavenly Father as they have a conversation about the secrets of God's heart. In other words, only to his friends will Jesus whisper the Father's heart because to do so is to entrust the treasure of the one who loves him into our own heart. That by doing so, we are let into the heart of God. It's that quality of friendship that is most needed, more than ever. It's the God-shaped heart that takes the risk to love and be loved. It's the kind where you can whisper to your friend the sacred longings, hopes, dreams and fears of your heart. It's likewise receiving from your friend the same, being entrusted with the treasure of their heart. And it's also experiencing joy and delight in being with each other, even through online technology, whether it be for a 15-minute coffee or a whole day at the tennis courts or sharing corny jokes that no one else appreciates, but they do. Friendships are gifts of God and gifts from God. The ability to open up our hearts and lives to others is a gift of and from God as well. In doing so, we reflect a bit on what Jesus shows us, what love is about, what it takes to love, and what it means to be loved. The wise words of philosopher and poet Henri Frédéric Amiel encapsulate well what is needed more than ever. Life is short. We have but little time to gladden the hearts of those who walk this way with us. So be swift to love. Make haste to be kind. Tabletop philosophy, role-playing games and the identities they help construct by Harry Gibbons. Picture this. No longer are you sitting at a computer desk or staring at your phone during your commute. Instead, you are an intrepid explorer, a noble warrior or a cunning thief. 
You've left behind the mundanity and anxieties of the real world. Now you are a protagonist in a new story. Your choices will shape the world around you. Your actions will be written into legend and recounted for centuries. But this is not done in isolation. You are together with friends. You work as a team. You bond. You laugh and celebrate each other's achievements as a unit. You are not alone. You are an adventuring party. Behind the grey skyline, through the condensation-heavy glass of the train window, is a world of infinite possibilities. Here, in your mind's eye, you shape reality. Here, you become the person that right now you want to be. There are no limitations beyond what you believe is possible. You are the captain, steering the ship in uncharted waters, where the aim is to share a good yarn with your friends. There's fine line between fantasy as a genre and escapism as a psychology. As we parade myth and legend within our respected cultures and contexts, we find something of ourselves. We read of Frodo Baggins, the underdog who takes on a responsibility of epic proportions, and see qualities we want to inhabit. We hear of Iron Man's sacrifice to save friends, and see something of our own relationships. This is not to say we literally aim to overthrow a dark lord or defeat a purple space utilitarian, but we see the humanity reflected within relatable moments through the fiction. The story we read or watch somewhat touches the cadence of the real world, no matter how fantastical. In an age where this cadence and its story-focused elements are twisted to become more marketable, where is the authenticity? How do we begin to tell our own stories? Is there a way in which our stories can speak of this cadence of the real world without the necessity to satisfy business? Enter stage left. Tabletop role-playing games. TTRPGs. The picture painted in the opening paragraph is steeped in my experience of commuting. Although not a universal experience, I found commuting sucked all the life from my world. If there is a hell, perhaps it is a continuous, never-ending loop of the Northern Line. I found myself recounting the previous evening, time spent with friends playing the fantasy TTRPG Dungeons & Dragons, reflecting on what I had learned from such an experience. As a theologian, I would ask if there was something of myself that I was seeing in the stories told. When I returned next time, where did I want this story to take me next? What story did I want to tell? Dungeon Dragons, or D&D, has been propelled into the cultural zeitgeist in the last decade, featured in popular television shows such as The Big Bang Theory and Stranger Things. D&D has emerged out of nerd basements and into the mainstream. No longer is D&D seen as something exclusively for mega nerds. It now stands shoulder to shoulder with other culture-shaping fictions such as The Lord of the Rings and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In 2014, the fifth edition of D&D aimed to streamline and tighten up the accessibility of the game whilst promoting creative and complex storytelling as a valued method of playing. 
In its earliest editions, D&D didn't care for character backstory or where the dungeon came from. A player's aim was simply to kill some baddies and find treasure. However, today's D&D aims for more nuance. Psychologists Søren Heinrich and Rachel Worthington highlight that this has allowed D&D to have a genuine therapeutic application. As the game creates a safe environment in which players can enact hypothetical scenarios, in other words, to fantasise about who they are and the world around them. Consequently, there is an opportunity to ask again, what story do I want to tell? Perhaps the most obvious example of this philosophy in action is the role D&D takes in Netflix's Stranger Things. The show is not explicitly about D&D. Rather, the game is used as an illustrative tool, showing the actions of the characters, as well as providing a metaphor for the mystery they uncover and the journey they go on. The show opens with four young boys playing a game of D&D in their parents' basement. The players discover a Demogorgon, a classic D&D monster, and they must work together to defeat it. However, their immaturity gets the better of them and they fail. In D&D, player characters take on different roles. It is only by working together that their various weakness can be supported and the villain defeated. This is the lesson that the boys learn. Teamwork. It is only when they learn to support one another that they are able to defeat the real-life Demogorgon they discover in their small American suburb. In Stranger Things, we find D&D acting not just as a thematic motif, but also as illustrative of a journey the young people go on. So, what are the philosophical mechanics behind this? How is D&D as a phenomenon transformative and illustrative in our present reality? Philosophers describe this sort of thinking as phenomenology. In simplistic terms, it concerns the lived experience of a phenomenon seeking to uncover its essence. What actually makes that thing you experience a thing at all? Are there attributes that are common across all experiences of that phenomenon? Or, more likely, is there a rich and informative complexity to its innermost workings? Whilst I am far from describing what the essence of D&D as a phenomenon is, I can speak of my own lived experience in the hope that it demonstrates how D&D is the transformative tool Stranger Things positions it to be. I hope that this not only illustrates my argument, even if it is as simple as D&D is good, but also provides a window in which my own story can be understood. I have written elsewhere about the role D&D has played in my theological evaluation of complex theoretical ideas. It has ultimately shaped the way I research and encounter complex questions. However, I want to highlight something different. In my other work, I spoke of a character I played for three years, a tabaxi paladin named Nine. Nine was somewhat of an experiment. After I was diagnosed as autistic, I found great difficulty in knowing who I was. Are there parts of me that are not autistic? Am I being autistic subconsciously? Or am I actively choosing to act in a way that a clinical professional has decided is autistic? Who am I? 
Nine was to be a method of exploring such questions. I wrote Nine as autistic in a way that was a somewhat exaggerated version of myself. Yet there was a distinct difference. Nine was the me who had come to terms with being autistic. Nine knew who he was and was proud of it. Nine just simply was nine. This was obviously not a perfect solution. The world of D&D does not have the clinical vocabulary to describe autism. In fact, whether autism exists in a fantasy world is kind of a fuzzy question. Was I inventing autism within the world by playing a character in such a way? Or is there ever a way I could not play a character as autistic due to being autistic myself? What emerged through Nine's interactions was something that, on a very personal level, I found deeply satisfying, illuminative and transformative. Nine developed, some might say unsurprisingly, relationships among the other player characters. He lived as I do, as a social creature in a social world. Whilst his interactions were sometimes unusual, perhaps in much the same way as my own, his friends still came to love him. Following the framework of theologian John Swinton, Nine was more than just included. Nine belonged to this group, simply because in his absence he would be missed. Once I had realised this, I was taken somewhat by surprise. The differences between Nine and the other characters still mattered, but they were not barriers. Nine was valued, not someone who was just difficult to approach, off in his own little world or obsessed and hyperfixated. Rather, he was one part of the whole. Nine belonged with his friends. He was not simply put up with. His style of encountering problems and solving puzzles strengthens the whole team. Nine was not a burden. This was where the transformation occurred. I realised that I was the Nine who did not have this understanding. Harry erroneously believed that he did not belong, when really he always did. Harry was embarrassed about his challenges with social engagement, his obliviousness to the world around him, and his inability to get through a conversation without talking about Doctor Who. Yet here I was among friends who cherished and valued me. Here I truly did belong, and it was Nine who taught me that. I hope that this illustrates just a snippet of the potential this game and games like it have to offer. I believe there is much more to be said about the philosophical truth spoken through D&D in much the same way we talk about other forms of art or narrative. This is just a portion of what is possible, and I hope I learn much more about myself as I continue along these adventures with my friends. I would encourage anyone reading or listening to give D&D a go. Although I am aware I have had a very specific and positive experience that is not universal among players of the game, perhaps the focus should not be that D&D is the best tool for therapeutic action, rather that D&D highlights the strength storytelling, narrative building and art in all its forms have for those who are coming to terms with their identity. Whilst we may be tempted to describe ourselves simply as I was when I was diagnosed as autistic, D&D reminds us that the stories our lives tell will always demonstrate more depth. Our lives 
are simply stories that we are constantly engaged with and that we are always telling. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.